it's made as we, we move into this world of modern theology where everybody thinks their ideas about what God should or shouldn't be doing matter rather than just taking God at his word. And the complaint gets made that Christianity is a bloody religion. You know, the, the, the accusation is that it's not really any different from any pagan religion anywhere else that's just sacrificing animals and drenching blood all over the place, and it's this very callous kind of very novice religion and that there, there's something lacking in sophistication and enlightenment to it. But there's a great reality that those who make that accusation are missing. Christianity is a bloody religion. We, we hang all of our hope in the blood of Christ. But that is not an ongoing sacrifice. That is not something that happens perpetually. In fact, the author of Hebrews goes to great lengths to argue that it is not a sacrifice made year by year by year as the Jews had done. It is a once-for-all sacrifice, so that once Christ had completed his work on the cross, it was finished. There's nothing left to do. There was no more blood necessary. Once the sacrifice that was sufficient to completely satisfy the Father's wrath was made, he's satisfied, sin is dealt with, and we now come to him, yes, drenched in that blood, but with no more blood ever owed again. He's been satisfied. Tim? Satisfied to the degree that nothing else could satisfy. Um, And we are so thankful for the fact that God's wrath was satisfied. You know, Ben mentioned the blood of Christianity that we talk about a lot, and we're not ashamed of that. We don't mind talking about that. The other thing we don't mind talking about is the wrath of God. Because it was that wrath that, that mankind has to deal with in one way or another. And in our own strength, we cannot deal with the wrath of God. We cannot withstand such wrath. But because of that shed blood, the wrath of God has been satisfied uh, both to the Father and for us. So we are grateful for that. One other thing before uh, I get into the message this morning, remind you of there are uh, lots of hand sanitizing stuff in the back um, that all was donated to us. Uh, Chief Day from the fire department called me up and said, hey, uh, I got a bunch of this stuff. Uh, I don't know what to do with it. I thought of you guys. If you can use it, I'll drop it off. So he's dropped it off. There's I mean, there's hand sanitizers, there's surface sanitizers, there's sprays, there's wipes, there's packets of wipes, there's tubs of wipes. I mean, it's all out there. all came from Tops. It's all brand new. As you know, Tops closed, so they had to get rid of their stuff. Jason called me and said, would you want it? And I said, well, drop off what you want. I'll get rid of what I can, and then we'll find another way to deal with whatever is left. So if you want something, help yourself to it. there's bags underneath the table. Those are, you know, we have this wonderful bag law in, South, in, in the United States where you have to bring your own bag to the grocery store. There's even bags, reusable bags that you can use. Uh, they came from the food pantry a while ago. We've been trying to get rid of them, and here's a great way to fill a bag of sanita- hand sanitizers and take a bag with you as well. Um, so help yourself to that stuff. Uh, whatever's left, I think I'm going to take to Pastor's Fellowship next time and distribute it that way as well. So thanks to the fire department for thinking of us and 
Um, also pray for us there. We have the opportunity to go to the Fireman's Installation Banquet this coming Saturday. Uh, we always have the privilege of praying while we're there. So, uh, And I try to construct my prayer in such a way that the gospel goes out as I pray. So if you pray for that as well, uh, we'd appreciate it very much. All right, take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, if you would. 1 Peter chapter 2. We're continuing to work our way through this second chapter of Peter's letter to the followers of Jesus. And we're at a point where Peter is calling us to live a certain way because of whose we are. Okay? Uh, I remind you that we are not our own. Paul says over in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that we are not our own. We're bought with a price. Uh, And that price is what we celebrated this morning, the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. We are bought with the price. Therefore, we want to glorify God in our heart and in our soul and in our bodies, which Jesus Christ purchased on the cross with his shed blood. So uh, we remember that as we live for Christ, we are living for for him and for his sake and for his honor and for his glory. We don't live the way we live because we have a reputation to maintain or because I have an image to keep up. We live for Christ because of what Christ has done for us. The title of our message this morning is, This is My Life. Okay, And how do I live my life in a way that honors him? This is my life because I am in Christ, and my life is not about me anymore, but it's about bringing glory to God. Paul puts it this way over in Galatians chapter 2, where he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. You remember that the idea we're looking at here in 1 Peter is that we are living stones. We are living stones in Christ, and Christ therefore lives in me, and he lives through me. So we want to make sure that as we live for him, others understand that we are living for Christ and not for self. Would you stand together as we read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12? You can read from the screen if you will. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Let's read together. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. Let's pray and ask God to bless our time together in his word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you today and we again thank you for your word. We know that the scriptures that we hold in our hands have been preserved by your Holy Spirit down through the corridors of time so that we hold in our hands accurate and reliable revelation that you have for us to live by. We're so thankful for the fact that you inspired the original writings of this word that, that uh, holy men of God were moved along by your spirit to record the things using their personalities, their, their characteristics to convey to us how to live life and how to do life. And, and, and Father, as those original manuscripts were, 
were inspired by the Holy Spirit. So are the translations uh, provided that they're accurate translations that we hold in our hands today are preserved by the same Holy Spirit. And we're so grateful that we can open them today and learn from them. Bless our time as we learn from the Apostle Peter this morning. Uh, We pray that as we learn from your word that we'll leave here challenged and different and with a desire to live for you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. You notice how our text started out this morning. It didn't start off with a but. It didn't start off with a therefore. Instead, it started off with a, let's call it a term of endearment, if you will. Peter says, beloved, beloved. He's writing to these individuals because he has a relationship with them. And it's a love relationship with them. You and I, we may be familiar with this term beloved or in the old King James, it's dearly beloved. Okay. Uh, And we use that, or at least we used to use that a lot, that phrase dearly beloved. Uh, You remember when you used to go to weddings and the, and the, the pastor who was marrying the couple would stand, stand up and say, dearly beloved, we are gathered here together today to unite so-and-so and so-and-so in holy matrimony. We probably don't use that phrase as much as we used to. Um, and, and part of that is because the people are, are writing their own vows and their own ceremonies. Nothing wrong with that as long as they keep Jesus in the center of those vows and in the ceremony. And it's, it's used to point others to Jesus Christ. But it's, it's probably an older term that we don't actually use that much anymore. Sometimes they used it as, at funerals as well. I don't do that so much uh, because when I do a funeral, I want the funeral to be... Uh, a, a fitting tribute of the individual that we are, are remembering. So I try to make it unique to that individual for the sake of the family, okay, to help them bring closure. And, and you know what? I, I actually try to bring the family to a point of, of, uh, of tears, where they, can, where they can be comforted through those tears and understand, hey, we have a hope. At least that's for those who know Christ as their Savior. I love understand the phrase, I love doing funerals for those who know Jesus as their Savior because it's simply a transition from this life to the next. I don't so much relish the idea of doing funerals for those who don't know Jesus as their Savior. Those are tough. Those are difficult funerals to do, and I use them as an opportunity to present the gospel to the family and to those who are in attendance. Uh, and a little rabbit trail there, but dearly beloved, we, uh, we are thinking about and remembering that Peter has a love relationship with these individuals, but there's more to it than that. This term beloved, or the phrase dearly beloved, was used by Paul and used by Peter many times, but the idea is perhaps more than we might think about when we think of the phrase beloved, okay? It's often deemed that Paul, when he was addressing his readers, said dearly beloved, uh, and we think of it simply as a term of endearment. And that's true, it is, because Paul was involved in the lives of these individuals. But as I was studying this past week, it came to my attention that there's much more to this word than what commonly meets the eye. The literal meaning of this word, dearly beloved or beloved, is that the object of special affection and a special relationship, okay? It's not just a simple love relationship. There's something special. There's a special affection and and a deep relationship. I like what R.A. Fawcett says about this phrase. He says, the words dearly beloved are the translation of one Greek word, plural in number, plural in number, 
okay? One Greek word, plural in number, the distinctive word used of God's divine love. This is not the dearly beloved of the pastor addressing his congregation on the Lord's Day morning, but it's Peter reminding them that they are dearly loved ones of God the Father. So much more than just me coming up to you and saying, hey, I love you, which I do, but me loving you is not quite the same as God loving you. How amazing is it that we stop and we remind ourselves through the preaching of the word of God today that God loves us. And not just a shallow love, not just an acquaintance kind of love, but it's a deep affectionate love from the creator of the universe to those who know him through his son Jesus Christ. God has a love for mankind, so much so that he sent his, his son to die on the cross for us, but he has even a deeper love to, for those who have responded to that death on the cross and have trusted Christ as, his, as their personal savior. I trust that's where you are this morning, and if you're not there, then please speak to somebody after the service so we can help you understand what it means to be dearly beloved of God. Now, this addressment, this title that that Peter uses this morning, is very fitting uh, for him to address his readers that way, especially after reminding them of their standing in the living stone, their standing in Jesus Christ. Last week, we talked about what that standing was, and we learned or were reminded that we as believers in Christ, those who have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, we are, first of all, elect. Paul, Peter says, we are a chosen generation, Chosen by God to be part of his family. Praise the Lord that we have been adopted into his family by his grace and his mercy. He also went on in our text last week to talk about the fact that we are esteemed. He called us a royal priesthood. So we are elect, we are esteemed, we are made part of the church of Jesus Christ, even though we had no desire to be part of that church in our fleshliness. Okay, so we are elect, we are esteemed, and we are exalted. We are a holy nation. God placed upon his beloved a special relationship and made us holy, set apart from all that is ungodly, earthly, and set apart to all that is of the Spirit of God. We are exalted, and in fact, we are extraordinary. Don't you love that phrase when he says we are his own special people? We are a peculiar nation, special, not in, the, not in the sense that somebody says, oh, not special, no, but special in the effect that God reserved his love, his care, his blessing to place upon us who know him through Jesus. We are indeed special people who have the recipients of the great grace and mercy of our God. You and I are dearly beloved by the Father. Paul talks about our status as beloved. He puts it this way in Ephesians chapter 1. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. Here's the blessing. Here's the dearly beloved part. He has blessed us with, hold on, we talked about this a little bit on Wednesday night, whet your appetite a little bit. He has blessed us with 
every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. As a beloved of God, you've been blessed by every spiritual blessing. Not one or two, not just a handful, but by every spiritual blessing. Some of those are things like justification, uh, sanctification, uh, preservation, all of those you know, those theological terms that we've dealt with in the book of Romans, those are the spiritual blessings that Paul is talking about. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In other words, before time began, before the world was created, he blessed us and chose us. Whoo, amen, hallelujah. That ought to get the blood pumping, shouldn't it? That should make us excited about being part of the beloved. But it's not ending there. He goes on and he says that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. And then here's some more of those spiritual blessings. He predestined us. Ooh, in other words, he said before time began, you're going to be like this. Like my son, Jesus Christ. He predestined us for what? For adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. In other words, he knew we didn't have a family. He knew that we were outside of the most important family that we could be part of. And that's his family. So he adopted us and placed us in his family, the very family of God. As sons. And I talked about it a little bit on Wednesday night, and I said, hey, girls, don't take offense by this, but to be a girl in this culture, in the family of God, in the, in the Old Testament, and even in the New Testament culture, was nothing that special. Sorry, not my plan, their plan. But to be a son, oh, it, you know, they didn't have the technology that we have today where you could tell what your child was going to be before uh, it came out. But, but back in those days when a child was born and it was a boy, the mother and the father, they rejoiced. They were, they were excited, yes. Remember Eve's comment? It goes all the way back to Eve. The first child she gave birth to. Man, I've gotten a boy child from the Lord. Woo! That was Eve. And every person who gave birth to a boy child down through the ages, that was their same excitement and enthusiasm. They got a son. We, doesn't matter what your gender is here today, have been placed into the family of God as boy children. With all, and what does that mean? It means we have all the rights and all the blessings of being the firstborn male child in the family. In other words, we get it all. That's what it means. Placed in the family of God as a, as a child of God with all of the blessings. He, adoption for himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And why, what happens as a result of being placed in such a family? Well, it results in the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Part of being in the beloved is all of those blessings. So when Peter says, dearly beloved or my dear children, he's saying so much in just that one word. My dearly beloved. So let's take a look. Uh, our text this morning calls us to a lifestyle, the way we should live because of our standing, because we are in the beloved. First of all, he says, we are, he talks about our personhood, who we are in Christ, who we are in the living stone. As dearly beloved, as part of the family of God, we should be different from those who are in the world. 
We should be different from those who don't know Jesus as their Savior. God has placed us in his family, so it behooves us to live as members of his family. You know, I told you before, every time we, when our kids were little and they would go spend the night in somebody's house or go off somewhere to do something, we would, tell, we would remind them, hey, you're representing the Mowers family. Do it well. Do it well. Much more important than that, we are representing God's family. So to all of us who represent our Savior and our Heavenly Father, do it well. Represent Him well. So uh, He will say to us when we enter into the gates of heaven, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of my rest. Okay, so we want to represent our Heavenly Father. Well, Peter reminds us here in our text, verses 11 and 12, uh, the, the temporary nature of our residence here on earth. Yes, we live here on earth, but we're, we're not here for a long period of time. 70, 80, 90 years, I mean, that's pushing it quite far if we reach 90, okay? Uh, and some live beyond that, but in light of eternity, even if you live to be 120 years old, that's short compared to eternity. I mean, even if you were Methuselah and you live to be 900 years old, it's still short in relation to eternity. We, sometimes I think we don't really grasp what eternity is. There's no, there's no end to eternity. It just continues to go on and on and on. So Peter says part of our personhood is that we are sojourners. This, this word sojourners, it's not really a popular word today. Um, when was the last time you used the word sojourner in conversation with someone or that you, you went on a sojourn? When, when did you last use that word? Anybody? When we read it today. But, but we haven't used it in relationship to our person, you know, my life. Okay? We just don't use that word. To be honest, I can't remember the last time I used it either. Um, Peter uses this Greek word, which has been translated as sojourner. It means a person that is in a place for a short period of time. Okay? A person that is in a certain place for a short period of time. The biblical word also means aliens. Aliens. Now, when someone uses the word alien, our mind generally does not go to the idea of somebody who's living temporarily in a particular place. It goes to the idea of outer space, you know, like a Martian or maybe a Klingon. That's what we think of when we think of aliens. But that's not what Peter had in mind. Uh, You know, here's what Peter had in mind. I've explained to many people when I'm talking about Micah's uniqueness. Ben mentioned Micah this morning. uh, His uniqueness. I tell people, well, it's because he's an alien, People look at me and say, what are you doing? alien. I, I mean, he is an alien. I can prove it. Go ahead, Timothy. Put this next slide up here. You see, this is Micah's birth certificate from South Africa, full birth certificate. You, you see what it says on the very top? Alien. Yeah, it says alien. See, if you've ever had a question why Micah is the way he is, it's because he's an alien. <laughs> you laugh. It's true. I used to have fun when we first came back, um, and, and I t- would tell people, um, well, the same idea, but a little different. Uh, you know, you have, every time you fill out a form for something, it asks what your nationality is. I've asked people if I could write down that Mike is an African-American. People look at me and say, Daddy, what do you do? They think it's a racist guy? No, he was born in Africa. He's an African-American. He's an alien. The poor kid, he didn't stand a chance of being normal. (laughs) 
Okay? So he's an alien. And in the truest sense, the very way Peter is using the word today, that's what Micah is. We lived for, you know, humanly, in human terms, a short period of time in another country. He was born in another country. When we, we had to leave South Africa when he was one month old, almost to the day. Uh, we're going through the customs and immigration on our way out of the airport. And the immigration official looks at me and says, uh, he asked some questions because we're taking a baby out, a one-month-old baby out of the country. He has some questions. He says, well, uh, do you have his birth certificate? Yes, we have his birth certificate. Do you have his passport? Yes, we have his passport. Okay, um, so today you have to declare whether he's going to be a South African citizen or an American at one month old. Now, we were always under the impression that he would have the opportunity when he turned 18 to choose his citizenship because he was born in South Africa. And, I, and so I said that to the immigration. I said, well, I thought he could choose that when he was 18. Nope, nope, you're leaving today, so he's got to decide today. At one month old, he's got to decide. Is he going to be an American or is he going to be South African? I said, well, that's a pretty easy choice. He's going to be an American, all right? Um, and, and so he's, but he is an alien, he doesn't, he's not a citizen of South Africa. We lived there for 16 years. We were aliens for 16 years. We were temporarily living in a country that was not our home country. Because it was not our homeland, this might come as a surprise in light of current things that are happening in our country. Because we were aliens, because we didn't live, we weren't from that country, it wasn't our homeland, we couldn't become citizens. We tried, but they said, nope, you can't. We tried, you know, so that means you can't vote. <laughs> Imagine that. As non-citizens, you can't vote in this country. Sounds like a reasonable rule, right? Anyway, we won't go too far down that road. Um, we can't vote because we're, we're only temporary residents in the country. We couldn't hold political office. Not that we wanted to. But, you know, all those kinds of things we couldn't do because we were aliens, it's not hard, and it wasn't hard for the South African people that we lived among to tell that we were different. Every time we opened our mouth, they knew, you're not from here, are you? Where are you from? Sometimes when they realized that we were Americans, they would say, have you ever been on TV? Are you famous? Oh, here's another one. My friend went to California have you ever met them? <laughs> New York, California. Nope, never met. Or another thing, we'd go out and we'd talk to our waitresses and people like that. I'm going to America someday. Cool, when are you going? Oh, I don't know, I'm just going. Okay, what are you going to do when you go there? Well, I'm going to go to the Statue of Liberty. I'm going to go to Niagara Falls. I'm going to go to Disney World. I'm going to go to the Grand Canyon. I'm going to go to Mount Rushmore. Uh, yeah, how long are you going to be there? A week. Okay. Have a great trip. Have fun. It's a great country. Okay, but you see, as an alien, we were different, and people knew that. We are aliens, my friends. In this world in which we live, yes, we get our mail at 6738 State Route 281 in Preble, New York, but this is not our home. We're passing through. No matter 
how long we are sojourning in this country and on this earth, we are still aliens. As a child of God, we're not citizens of this world. This world is not our home. And we should see ourselves. We need to remind ourselves that we are sojourners. And we live in such a way that at any time, we could be asked to leave this country, to leave this world. As, as missionaries, we trained our church so that at any moment in time, because the government could say, you're no longer welcome here, you have to leave, and they did that to us once, that the church would be ready to take its stand on its own without any help from anybody else except for who they were as a church. And remember, this was a church plant never existed before. And they did pretty well without us. Now, several other people stepped up and helped during that crisis time. But you know what? As aliens, we had to leave. We didn't want to leave. That's the difference between us as aliens in South Africa and us as aliens in this world. You and I, I hope, are ready to go at any moment when God calls us to go home. Now, I, I probably would agree with you that most of us are choosing for the rapture option. We'd rather for that to happen sooner rather than later. But if God chooses a different plan and he's sovereign and, and his grace will be sufficient, his strength will be what we need at that moment in time. But we should be ready to leave at any moment because we're not of this world. Now, just because we're aliens doesn't mean we can't make an impact. We did our best to make an impact in South Africa. We, we, we have, we're not South Africans by birth, but we love the country. We love the people that God called us and allowed us to minister to with and to while we were there. We love Preble. We love Central New York. And we minister alongside of you here at Calvary Baptist Church. And we love this privilege and this opportunity. Because that's what God has called us to do. We want to love the people where God has placed us. We want to communicate the love of Jesus to those people who are, uh, who are here. We want to represent our homeland and we want to do it well. We want to represent people in such a way that others want to go there. They want to go there and, and, and see what it's like. Thing is, when you go to heaven, you don't come back. But that's okay because it's such a wonderful place. So we are sojourners in this world, but that's, there's more to it. We are also strangers, or the word pilgrim in this world. We are strangers and pilgrims. Now, I have to confess something to you. I couldn't, every time I thought, and I was working on this message, a, a voice came to my mind. You might know the voice. John Wayne. Howdy, Pilgrim. Uh, that's just what came to my mind. But you know what? We're not John Wayne pilgrims either. Okay? Uh, we are followers of Jesus, and that makes us pilgrims in a strange land or strangers in a foreign land. This is not the first time we've seen this word stranger or pilgrim. Uh, he used it over in chapter 1, Peter did. You may remember there that we said the word means to be of a foreign nationality and of a temporary residence. You see, we're temporary residents here on earth. Peter is stressing that. But he also wants us to think about where our eternity will be spent. And that's in heaven. And since that's our home, we represent well. We remind ourselves of this truth perhaps by 
uh, the teaching of Jesus when he said this over in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures in, on earth where moth and rust uh, and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. You see, we can lay our treasure in heaven because that's where our heart and home is. In heaven. And that's where we're going someday. Okay. Forgive me for this one as well. 80s Christian rock band Petra. Anybody know who they are? Doug's got his hand up. Carol, yeah. Okay. Um, When we went to BBC, we couldn't listen to Petra. Well, we weren't supposed to listen to Petra. Okay? But... They had some really good stuff. We had a friend who took a, uh, made a tape of mild, mellow Petra stuff, took it to the dean of men and said, hey, could you approve this music to listen to in the dorm? Now, dean of men didn't know who this group was. And he listened to all these mellow Petra songs. He says, Brian, this is good stuff. You, you can listen to this in the, in the dorm. Yes, absolutely. So he takes it back to his dorm and he puts it in and turns up the music, listens to Petra in the dorm till his RA said, hey, what are you listening to? Why are you listening to Petra? Oh, I got approval. The RA went back to the dean of men. Well, why did you approve Petra? I, I didn't approve Petra. He knew who Petra was. He just didn't know what they sounded like. Now, anyway, 80s Christian rock band Petra has a great song that reminds us of what it is that we are in this world. We are pilgrims, the song says, in a strange land. We are so far from our homeland. With each passing day, it seems so clear this world will never want us here. Getting more and more like that, isn't it? This world will never want us here. We're not welcome in this world of wrong. We are foreigners who don't belong. We are strangers. We are aliens. We, we are not of this world. We are envoys. We must tarry. With this message, we must carry. There's so much to do before we leave. With so many more who may believe, our mission here can never fail. The gates of hell will not prevail. Jesus told us men would hate us, but we must be of good cheer. He has overcome this world of darkness, and soon we will depart from here. Well done, Petra, for a great reminder that this world is not our home. Our home is in heaven. While we're here, let's live well. Let's represent God well. Let's honor him with our life, but let's long for home. Let's long for that time where we see our Savior face to face. That's our personhood, who we are in the living stone. Let's see what then our plan should be. What are we supposed to do because we are strangers and we are aliens? Well, Peter lays it out pretty clearly for us here uh, in verse 12. He says that we must abstain from fleshly lusts that war against the soul. Abstain from those things that wage war against your soul. The principle here of abstaining suggests that there's something that we have to do in our walk with the Lord. This word abstain literally means to hold oneself back from something. Okay? Hold oneself back. Don't get involved in it. It also seems that it's not necessarily an easy thing to do. In other words, we must put effort in to holding ourselves back from fleshly lusts that war against the soul. I'm not talking about salvation by works, but I'm talking about after we're saved, these are things that we don't want to be part of. We need to push them away. We need to stop from allowing them to be part of our lives. 
as a child of God, Peter is saying we need to strive to be like Jesus. We need to strive to live like our Savior lived. The w- excuse me, the way we talk from the little curse words to the big four-letter words. That's part of the fleshly lust that Peter is saying we must abstain from. Stop doing that. Stop talking like that. The world, and even some in Christianity, would suggest that cursing and swearing is just a normal part of life, so why try to stop doing it? Well, it is a normal part of human life, but we're not of this world. We're not simply of the race of Adam anymore. We are of the race of the second Adam. We are of the race of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ saved us. I mentioned this before, that he didn't just save our soul, he saved our tongues. So those words, and I wish I could use some for examples, just so you would know what I'm talking about, but I'm not in the habit of doing that, so I'm not going to. But you know those words that you shouldn't use. And, and sometimes we just become accustomed to it as a way of life, and, and, but we need to work at it. We need to work at abstaining from fleshly lusts that war against the soul. As a child of God, I remind you that we're not normal. Remember, we are peculiar people. We are people that have been called to live for and live like Jesus. Think about your speech. Would Jesus use those words? Huh? Probably not. Yeah, but everybody else, they talk about it, and you know what? They're not even, I mean, when I was growing up, the words that I'm talking about were frowned on by most people, at least in public. (laughs) I was reading here, get this, I saw something that uh, the town historian from Preble posted on the the website, uh, and one of the things was from when, when they used to swim in the Preble Pond, how many people remember that? Okay, there used to be a, um, you know, the, the, the pond over here, they used to have lifeguards on duty. They had a whole set of rules. I think there were 20 rules that you had to agree to abide by. Uh, and, and Jay posted this the other day. He said, these were the rules for whatever year it was. Uh, and number 17, no foul language. Somebody commented in the comments, I, 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 number 17 makes me laugh. No foul language. Because that kind of language is acceptable today. I mean, when we were growing up in our house, if you used some of those words, you got in trouble. You got your mouth washed out. It didn't have to even be the bad ones. Even the little ones. Here's another confession for you. When I was, I was, I was so accustomed to not using those, those words and seeing... I don't know that I ever got my mouth washed out, but my, my brother might have a time or two. Um, and, and so I didn't, you know, how do you wash somebody's mouth out with soap? I mean, soap tastes terrible. But the other thing was, like, hot sauce. So I remember a friend of mine cursing at me or at somebody else. So you know what I did? I went and got the Tabasco sauce, and I made him drink some of it. Don't talk like that! That's not about conforming. You understand that, right? I was trying to conform him, trying to make him not talk like that anymore. That might have probably done more harm than good. But you and I, we don't want to talk like that because we're different. Because God has saved us, and God doesn't want us to talk like that. Anyway, it's not just about the talk. 
It's about the things we, we look at, the things we watch, the things we, we, we indulge in, if you will. It's all of life. When we think of lust, Peter says, abstain from the fleshly lusts that war against the soul. We often think of sexual impurity, things like adultery and fornication. But again, it starts with the smaller things, like the things we watch, the things that we look at. You know, people are complaining today about the, the incredible spike in crime we have in our country. And some people are pointing them back to the fact that, hey, it's because you said this was okay, and this was okay, and this was okay. That's why in the small things, it's okay to do them, even though they're wrong. We're having these problems in these big things. There's truth in that. Abstain from the fleshly lust, not just the big things, but the little things as well. There's a Sunday school song that we sang while growing up that communicated great truth and wonderful teaching for us as children. The first verse goes like this. You may remember it. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. For the Father up above is looking down in love. So be careful, little eyes, what you see. The second verse goes, or another verse goes, Oh, be careful, little tongue, what you say. Oh, be careful, little tongue, what you say. For the Father up above is looking down in love. So be careful, little tongue, what you say. Other verses mention our ears. Be careful what you hear or what you listen to. Our hands, be careful what you do. Our feet, where you go. And our mind, what you think. You see, my friends, the battle is difficult. Because Satan wants us to lose this battle. He's going all out to make us think that it's no big deal if you do those things. But they are fleshly things that wage against the soul. Everyone does it. You know the old adage. If everyone jumped off a cliff, would you? Very good. No. All right, so everybody talks like that. Doesn't mean it's all right for us to talk like that. Satan and his minions are at work attacking us often in this battle. Roger Raymer makes this comment in his commentary. Christians are to resist the sinward pull of those worldly desires which war against their spiritual lives. In this real spiritual battle, a demonic strategy is to attack believers at their weakest points. Do we have any hope in this battle? Yeah, we do. What do we have? We have the armor of God that he has given to us. You might wonder, how can I control these things? This is impossible. How do I live the way God wants me to live? I just can't do it. Well, in your own strength, you can't. But Paul has some valid advice for us. We, we find it over in the fourth chapter of Philippians, verse 8. You probably know this verse already. Finally, brethren... Whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of a good report, if there is any virtue, if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Can you imagine if everybody was thinking about things that are true, noble, just, how much better our world would be? How about if we say just if every Christian was thinking about those things, how much better would our world be? This is great advice from the Apostle Paul, a wise man that desired to serve and obey his Savior. Uh, We can ask God to help us follow his advice and think on those things that will keep us 
walking in the direction that God wants us to walk in. So we are to abstain from fleshly lusts. Peter also says that we are to accomplish honorable conduct among the Gentiles. You've heard me say before that Paul likes to use the substitutionary principle. Well, we see it here in Peter as well. Abstain from sinful conduct, and instead of doing the sinful things, do these things that show you, are, uh, you have a heavenly nature, and you are of your Father in heaven, not of your Father the devil. Before we were unsaved, we couldn't do any better. But now that we're saved, we can honor the Lord with our life. The world is going to be watching us. Have you ever noticed that? The world, you tell people that, that you're a Christian, and then the world starts to watch you differently. And why are they watching? They're watching so they can catch you in doing something that they know you shouldn't do as a Christian. The world is watching us. So you know what's at stake? Not just our testimony, but the testimony of God, the one who saved us. Good works. Why do we do them? Peter says, accomplish honorable conduct or do good works. Good works is a much talked about topic in, the, in Scripture. We talk about it in the church. It's important for us to understand the role of good works in the life of the child of God. You know that good works don't save you. Not possible. Can't make you right. You can't do enough of them to weigh off the scales. Uh, uh, Not that there's even any scales, but if there were, you couldn't do enough good to outweigh the bad. Because we're depraved. All we like sinners have gone astray. We've led everyone to his own way. But what do good works do? Well, we've said it many times, but it bears repeating. Good works don't save us. Rather, good works prove our salvation. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said this. We're going to look at a few things to talk about good works. Matthew 5, Jesus said this. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your what? Your good works. And do what? Glorify your Father who is in heaven. Good works is how we shine the light of the gospel. And those good works glorify our heavenly Father. Paul talks about good works uh, when he's writing to Pastor Timothy. He says uh, that these good works, Timothy, if you do them, they will teach the Ephesian believers how to honor God and how to live well in this world. Timothy, your good works abound, your example abounds to others. It demonstrates who you are. Verse 18 says, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share thus storing up treasure for yourselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of what is truly life. So Peter is, or Paul is telling Timothy, do good works. Be quick to do good works and do them all the time. Do them often. Because when you're doing them often, people will see who you are and people will want what you have so that they may take hold of what is truly life. That's why we do good works. The writer of Hebrews wants his readers to know the importance of encouraging others to do good works. We talked about this yesterday a little bit in our meeting with, uh, with the NLT. This verse came up. Uh, but this is what the writer of Hebrews says. And you're going to say, Pastor, you, you share this verse a lot. But, you know, I've learned over the years that it doesn't just mean what we think it means. There's more to it. 
verse 24 and 25 of Hebrews chapter, um, chapter 4, I think. He says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I will agree with you that preachers have used this verse as a... Um, as to make people have a guilty conscience for not coming to church. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. That's, we often do that. But you know what? That's not really what this, this verse is saying. This verse is saying, yes, don't forsake yourselves from gathering together, but there's a reason for it. And the reason is verse 21, because coming to church and fellowshipping and learning and worshiping with your brothers and sisters in Christ is a good work, not that brings you to salvation, but that encourages others. Can I tell you that by you being here this morning, you are encouraging the people that are sitting next to you, the people that are sitting in front of you, the people that are sitting behind you, you're encouraging the pastor, you're encouraging the worship leader, the piano player. You, by being here and being faithful to the services, are an encouragement to others. Big deal. What's so important about that? (laughs) You know what's important about that? Because it helps prepare us for the difficult days to come. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. You gather together so much more as you see the day drawing near. You need it. I'm not telling you that. The writer of Hebrews is telling you that. Because the days, my friend, are getting worse and worse. They ain't getting any better. They're getting worse. So as they get worse, we better find ourselves gathering together for the encouragement and for the blessing that that is with one another. We spend time thinking about how we can encourage one another to do good works. The writer says, let us consider, let us think about how we can stir, how we can agitate, how we can stir the pot of good works. That's not a bad thing, that's a good thing. He throws then into the mix of good works the idea of faithfully attending a a local body of believers. And he suggests that it's part of the will of God for us. You know, oftentimes we want to know what God's will is for us. You know what it is? At least part of it? Come to church. That's pretty simple. Come to church. Okay? That's it. I'm done beating you up with that. Okay, uh, You see, you and I were supposed to do good things so we can demonstrate to others that we love the Lord and we want to do what is right before Him. This is a testimony for us against those who speak evil, untrue things about us. You see, if our life is continually characterized by good works and somebody comes up to us and, and accuses us of something, it's not going to stick. Junior high class, gym class, we had these we called them the cages, um, and, and every wall was, I don't know, probably a couple feet wide, um, and it was, you, you would go in, and you would have a basket in there, and you would have a lock on your basket, so you were in there, and that's where you changed and got ready for gym class, and then after gym class was over, you, you went back, and you changed again, of course, what do you do as a boy in gym class? You put deodorant on before you go to your next class, right? So we were in there in the cages, uh, and the guy next to me uh, was putting on his deodorant. He realized it was all done. So what did he do, being a junior high boy? He took his empty container of deodorant, and he threw it over the, the cage wall there. He didn't know that Mr. Graham was on the other side. 
and the empty deodorant plastic thing hit Mr. Graham. He came, Mr. Graham came around here on the other side of the cage, and there was only two of us in there. He looked at me, and he looked at the other guy, and he went straight to the other guy. And in those days, you could lay hands on kids, okay? So Mr. Graham took this guy, and he pushed him up against the, the, the cages, and he said, why did you do that? I didn't do it. He did it. He looked at me, and he says, no, he didn't. You did it. His, his false accusation didn't stick because Mr. Graham knew my character. Not that I was above that, but I just was, I tried not to get in trouble in school. I wasn't always successful, but I tried not to. But he looked at me and he looked at the other kid who didn't have such a good reputation, and he knew who did it. You see, as Christians, our life should be a testimony that says, when somebody says, you did something wrong, everybody else is going to say, no, uh-uh, not, 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 not the case. I know that person, I know the testimony, I know the reputation. That's not what they would do. That's how you and I are to live life, and that's what good works do for us. They don't do anything for our salvation, but they shout loud and clear that you are a child of the one true God. And then we want to look lastly at the fact that good works advance the glory of God. So when I'm doing good works, it's not for me. It's for the glory of God. Good works that Paul says have been prepared for us beforehand, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, in eternity past. And when we do those good works, our Father is glorified. The interesting thing here is why he is glorified. He's glorified because in the day of visitation, we have to wrestle with that a little bit. What does that phrase mean in the day of visitation? Um, the idea of the day of visitation is when God visits and brings salvation to a lost person. That's their day of visitation. When God brings them to a face-to-face encounter with the word of God and they confess and repent and trust Jesus as their savior. That's their day of visitation. So when when our good works are involved in helping somebody understand who God is and what the gospel is, and God visits them with the truth of the gospel in, in, a, in a black and white or a verbal presentation, and they trust Jesus Christ, what happens? They're saved, but God is glorified. Our good works are to be used to help others to see and understand their need of salvation. MacArthur explains it this way. He says, God's redemption is inherent in Peter's reference to the day of visitation. The apostle used the expression to show that because of observation of Christian virtue and good works in the lives of believers, some would be privileged to glorify God when he also visited them with salvation. This, my friends, is why good works is so important in the life of the child of God and in the life of the church. We at our church here at Calvary Baptist Church are trying to increase the good works or the good deeds that we do in our community, not just for a good reputation, but so that others might know that we love them and that we love Jesus and that our love for Jesus is compelling us to do good things for them. And when they get saved, if God should so uh, graciously visit them and communicate the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, they get saved God is glorified. doesn't really matter what happens here for us, but God is glorified. Every time a sinner comes to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, 
God is glorified. So if you're wondering, why, why, why would you do a fundraiser for the Preble Fire Department? Why would you do uh, whatever uh, for, you know, get involved with the Preble Park Program, which I don't think exists anymore, or, or host a blood drive clinic, or why, would you, why do you do those things? We, we never did those things before. We want to do good work so people will know that we care for them, that we love them, and we want them to know that Jesus loves them too. You, you realize that we're past the age where people are going to walk into a church building because it's a church building. There were times when people would say, oh, you know, I should go to church today, and that's the closest one, so let's go there today. We're beyond that. Unless God is doing a work in that person's heart, they're not going to walk through the doors of that church. It's not culturally acceptable to do that anymore. So we do things that will bring people into our building so they will know we love them, know that we care for them, know that we're here for them. That's why we do the good works, not just to get a good reputation. You see, this is my life. This is your life. You and I, we've been called to a life of good works because we are saved, not to bring us salvation. Those good works will show others that we are indeed born again. Those good works will, will, will show others that we love our Savior, Jesus Christ, and that we love them, and that we have a personal relationship with Him through His Son, Jesus Christ, and they can have that same personal relationship just like we do. The Holy Spirit still works in people's lives, still brings conviction to the lost, and we want them to see that there's a difference And so we do the good works that we do to honor and glorify our Savior Jesus Christ. What a joy it is to be part of the work that only Jesus can do, to be an instrument in the hands of Jesus to deliver a soul from hell and into heaven. That's why we do good works. Let us strive to be people who are known for our good works that bring glory to our great God. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you so much for this reminder from the Apostle Peter of good works. We do good works not to save us because we could never do enough, but we do good works to show others that we definitely have a relationship with you through Jesus Christ. We do good works to show love to our neighbors, to our coworkers, to our unsafe family members. We do what is right because that's what you've called us to do, to represent you well and to bring glory to your name. Help us to do that well this week and in the weeks to come. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand together as we close our service singing, More Love to Thee.